0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Ruler podcast with me, Jack Thurston. This is the podcast for issue 48 of the magazine. And here with me, along with a pneumatic drill, is ex-professional bike racer, Tom Southern. Contributor to the magazine um, and making your third appearance on the Ruler podcast. Welcome,
1: Tom. Thank you. I might uh, add that it's not me with a pneumatic drill, um, actually, but uh, yeah, no, thank you.
0: You're a committed absinthe drinker. This is something that we've learned about you on social media. I guess pneumatic drills and absinthe and the morning don't go too well together.
1: Uh, Yes, no. Uh, Any time after I start drinking absinthe, uh, a pneumatic drill wouldn't go down well at all, so I I, I try and avoid them. I don't normally start until the evening. I'm not committed enough to start in the morning yet.
0: Well, I guess if you started in the evening and carried on and then got the wake-up call from the pneumatic drill, that's going to be ugly.
1: I've I've carried on a few times and it uh, doesn't go well. It doesn't go with or without a drill. It doesn't go well.
0: Well, I don't think there's any absinthe in the current issue of the magazine. Um, but let's let's dive in with our, our opening um, choices of favourite photos or photo spreads from from this this issue.
1: Yeah, so um, mine's actually going to be one of Andy Waterman's pictures from the piece I did on uh, Dave Rayner. Um, a a double-page spread of his training diary from when he was, I'm not quite sure, of the year. It's just got January. When we went there and when we sort of um, met the family and they got out a lot of photos in his old training diaries, it almost felt like... Um, we were getting such an intimate portrait of the guy. It almost felt um, it, it was quite it was quite intimate, and I, f- I found it fascinating that they were so so keen for us to sort of look into these into these and to photograph them and let Andy take pictures for the magazine. And um, I mean, I like training diaries anyway, um, but this is a lovely thing. He's, he's kept a um, record of his mileage, of where he went, um, and he's, he splits each of his days into morning, afternoon, and evening, and he's got like what he does in them. And some of them are wonderful in the afternoon. One afternoon he's got washed car. One afternoon he's got messed around. Went looking for vitamins, um, or half an hour on the turbo, and little things like that. And it's just a, yeah, a lovely little, lovely little glimpse into someone's life as a cyclist.
0: My choice is um, at the other end of the magazine, and it's a portrait of Roger De Vlaminck, um in a series of, of black and white portraits of. Um, Cyclists of days gone by, and I just—I think it's just a lovely, a lovely photograph. I mean, he is a very charismatic man in every sense, in the in the in the way he looks, in the way he talks, in the way he rides, or the way he rode. And and here he looks like a
1: he looks like a gangster, doesn't he? Basically, he looks yeah fantastic in this picture. There's something something about him, and it's it's quite interesting knowing how he's. Um, sort of how he's acted in his old age um, like there are people that might suggest he hasn't quite grown old gracefully certainly when um, Tom Boonen won Four Paris-Roubaix and he came out and said well it's not as hard as you know sort of when I did it and he still has a lot of attitude about him in this photo and, and he sort of oozes it that like you said like a gangster that kind of badass attitude which I guess is what he had on the bike as well
0: OK well let's let's, let's, let's start with, um, with your piece that you just mentioned there um, about Dave Rayner now, tell us who Dave Rayner was.
1: Dave Rayner was yeah, a former professional cyclist, one of the few um, at the time in the UK who um, actually managed to make it as a, a European pro. So I think there was much more of a division, um, certainly in the 80s and 90s, between um, a domestic rider and a European professional. Um, Europe was still very much years and years ahead in, in terms of the cycling world. It was much further away as well, so the idea of going across there when you're young with no internet, um, no access to call home, um, and making a life out there was a much, much bigger task. And he was one of the guys who did it. Um, he went out and he rode for Buckler, which was you know, one of the biggest teams of the time, if not the, um, And uh, spent a few years there, I, I had an interesting career which was, you know, tragically cut short um, when he was killed in a nightclub at just age 27, which is... Uh, Horrible, horrible story, and one that was quite quite hard to tell. When you have you know someone who's a loss of life like that, so it was a challenging story to tell. It's one of those things you really want to do justice to, uh, and I hope that we did really. Oh well,
0: I think you definitely did. Um, his name lives on in the name of a fund um, set up to help young riders. What was the impetus for the family to to set up that fund? I mean, it's something that a lot of people, a lot of people who suffer this kind of tragedy they they do feel they want to create something to allow something of the person that they've lost to continue on into the future
1: Yeah, I think when we went up there and we sort of sat around obviously um, when when we were there Keith Lambert and Sid Barris and his wife Linda who who are from the fund came over as well on the same day and and, and talked to us And as soon as I got there I noticed the sense of community that's built around cycling that exists there and it's it's so incredibly strong that I think when I spoke to Sid Barris about it, he almost said it was a foregone conclusion because it's something that has brought the reign of family right into the heart of that community. It was an important thing for I think everyone to, everyone to do because I think that the whole community was hit by the shock of it. And so I think it may have been born out of grief, just out of some sort of let's keep this name going. But since it's quite nice to see, like um, talking to John Rayner, he, he has riders all, all over the world who know about the Rayner Fund, and he sort of gets on the internet and follows these guys, and it's it's given the family almost a whole other sort of family to follow, which is which is a really really lovely thing, and I think it's I think it's only managed to exist for so long because it does exist for the right reasons, and it's it actually got really interesting when you meet guys who were born after so after Rainer had uh, you know, died who so, could never have known him but then his name is still going to be important in their careers and it, yeah, in, it, in the best and sort of grandest sense his name does live on in that way which I, I, think, I think is the real idea behind the fund to support the Rainer family through the community So who funds it? Where does the money come from? It's all uh, run on donations, basically, so they have the, um, they have the uh, Rainer fund dinner at the end of every year when they raise money there. Um, they have quite a lot of private donators and basically they started off just going around with buckets uh, events and asking for money and I think in the first few years they would have had a few thousand pounds. I mean I spoke to Charlie Vigelius, who was one of the first intake, I think along with David Miller, and basically yeah I think Charlie got two thousand pounds for the year or something he said but. It, that was all they had. Um, and these days they've got 20 riders on it, I think, um, and, and a much bigger turnover. So it's got, they also run a Sportive as well, which obviously generates a lot of income. But all of these things rely on the goodwill um, of the volunteers who help run it, which is, yeah.
0: And how necessary is a fund like that now compared to the days when Dave Rayner himself was trying to make it as a, as a professional bike racer? You described Charlie Bugailius of two thousand pounds being a huge amount of money that actually made something possible. Um, you spoke to Teo Hart and he said that well, it's not really about the money because I'm very well looked after on my on my development team. Is that a sign of how much things have changed for young riders in Britain today?
1: Uh, yes, and also for the fund, I think because the interesting thing about when I spoke to Teo was his point was like the money is a help, but the Biggest help is the name of the fund itself because the fund's grown so much in twenty years that it's now almost a calling card for a guy like Taylor. So when he did run into Dave Miller in Girona, he was like, "Oh, look, um, I'm on the Dave Rayner Fund straight away." And then Miller knew, okay, he's doing this, and it's become sort of the uh, the alternative to the to the sort of GB system. One of the alternatives to the GB system, which. The GB system then is 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 the argument that things have really really changed because there are other riders going through that who obviously have things that you know riders like Dave Renner couldn't have dreamed of. The direct link into a professional team, which then now exists at Team Sky, and also the change of change of perceptions of British riders in the European peloton um, is, is a massive thing. Um, before previously, getting into a team, you were like a second-rate citizen. So why would you we take you? You don't have good guys. But then you've got guys at the top like Cavendish and Wiggins who are winning, then it's like, oh hang on these British guys might have something um, so I mean, yeah it's it's changed, it's, it's unrecognisable compared to what it was.
0: Is there any downside to the infusion of money and support that's come to riders? Because you allude to the fact that in, the, in Dave Rayner's career short as it was, he learnt the old ways, you know, hard riding as a, as a young man trying to keep up with riders that were much his senior in in terms of age and condition and then obviously going to the continent with very little teaches you a certain amount of self-reliance and toughness do you think that there's any downside i'm not saying that these guys are cosseted and and pampered but do you think that there's something that the the, the system can't introduce which is a sort of toughness and a self-reliance or do you think that just naturally comes from the rigors of bike racing
1: I think um, in some respects cycling is just hard enough there is a part of you that thinks oh like you know you need to be tough and learn it this way and that way but actually that's kind of bollocks because you know if you get there and you're good enough why make your life harder it's so hard and I think for years the major advantage that say an Italian rider would have over an English rider was the fact that they weren't going through absolute purgatory on their own lost in an apartment they've always been at home they've always been looked after they've always been close to their family so the fact that guys can have it now and don't have to do it, I think, is probably a good thing. Really, you know, um, there's no need to um, sort of brandish yourself with that stamp of genuineness or whatever it was um, that we we all thought there, you know, we all thought there was. But it's just changed.
0: One of the riders that you spoke to as a beneficiary of the Rayner Fund was Jonathan Tin and Locke, and you are a friend of Jonathan's, and Jonathan has now been uh, given a two-year sanction by the UCI, confirmed by the UK Anti-Doping Agency. You, at the very earliest stages of of when this um, situation was announced, you put your head above the parapet on Jonathan's behalf.
1: What what are your thoughts now? Not a lot's really changed in my mind. I believed in John from the start. Um, He's a close friend of mine. Um, That's not changed. He's obviously chosen not to speak to the press, um, so I can't speak on his part, or nor do I want to say that I am. I imagine he's pretty disappointed at the moment with what's happened. It's pretty sad for the guy. Whatever, whatever you know, whatever the case, I certainly still believe in him. I just don't think that. Um, yeah. I don't think it adds up what he was uh, accused of doing and how he could have done it in Plymouth in the UK, and how he would have had the network of support to do that. Um, certainly not when he was racing alongside me at the team that I was in and earning the kind of money you earn in the UK. Don't know how you could even comprehend financing a, a sophisticated doping regime on you know sort of twelve, ten thousand pounds a year that guys are earning at in small UK teams. Um, he's obviously put all this to you know yeah. to a committee and they've they've said what they've said. So I think he'll walk away from the sport and get on with his life and do something else. And you have to remember that. Um, there's a lot more to life than bike riding. So as long as he is a happy um, and comfortable individual in his life, then you've got nothing to worry about, really. The case does raise some questions
0: in relation to transparency of the process of this biological passport, because that's what was flagged up. It was some anomalies in the biological passport. And that that doesn't really mean anything, does it? I mean, it's sort of... Reading between the lines, it means blood doping, but it's not very clear compared to a traditional positive test yeah. where you can have the lab results, you can put the spectrometer, yeah, what do they call it, the spectrograms on the um, on the internet, and you can see, you know, here is the synthetic testosterone or here is whatever, here is the clenbuterol. How did that get into your system? Biological passport anomalies, it doesn't really say very much, and there does seem to be a, a problem here in terms of justice being seen to be done, that there needs to be more explanation on the part of the people who are taking someone's livelihood away from them.
1: And I think if you rewind sort of ten years, whatever it was, um, in Charlie's book we wrote about when Charlie um, went above the hematocrit line, when the test was still a crude indicator of who was taking EPO and who wasn't. And Charlie basically went to clear himself, um, it's in the book, he, he went to clear himself, went to the lab and said to the doctors, like, this is kind of bullshit this is natural and they said yeah we we know there's going to be anomalies but this is the best system that we have at the moment and there's going to be there's going to be casualties and i'm sorry about that and when you're the individual concerned you don't want to be noble and think oh well you just take my livelihood you've worked your entire life off for it um you know so it's very hard to stomach and from one side of the argument, you think, well, okay, there's going to be collateral damage, but it's cleaning the sport up, which is fantastic, and it's what we really need. On the other side of the argument, there is the individual who loses something, and it, it does happen. Um, I think who loses something unfairly. Nothing's ever going to be perfect in that sense. I'm sure it's much, much better. But if I was an athlete now, and I was on on the blood, you know, on the blood passport, and I thought there was even the slightest chance of it not working and being wrong then I'd really be shitting myself because let's say John and Locke goes down for something he didn't do surely every other athlete in the world should think hang on a minute that could be me but most athletes attitude again is just to get on with their own stuff you don't want to worry about other people so it's much much easier to go okay well sure maybe he was doing something and in anyone's case it's much much easier just to look at it and go ah oh, well uh, I'm 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 sure he was doing something and I'd be as guilty as anyone if I saw a rider I didn't know in a continental team pop up um, and start, you know, smashing people apart then you'd, you'd ask questions I remember a few years ago uh, a guy called like Pecha Man who rode for a tiny little Spanish team won three or four stage races in a year like rode Bertini off the wheel to win one of them he was outstanding went to quick step and was a disaster for years and I always just went, oh well, just labelled him as you know, flash in the pan, who had done something to get where he was. I don't know, I don't know his, I don't know his story. I don't know whether he was doping, or whether he wasn't doping, or even before John had a problem. I remember thinking about Petra Manor. I remember thinking, shit, I judge that guy so quickly, and yet I wouldn't judge my friend in the same way. So I don't know if it's a good example or a bad example. Um,
0: <laughs> I guess one thing we can certainly agree on is that explaining a bit more about how the biological passport works and what the anomalies are would be a good idea because there are informed journalists out there there are very informed fans out there who can you know interpret these things with a degree of sophistication and and the UCI just updating a pdf document on its website and not providing any kind of supporting evidence is is just not really up to the standards of transparency that that were the platform of Brian Cookson's campaign to replace Pat McQuaid.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree, but I, I also have to admit that I'm probably in the I'm I'm not someone who's informed. Like I couldn't read into it, and I don't know. Um, I'm not really. I've never I've never taken a great interest in in that side of things, and I respect the guy the journalists who do. I think they've got you know, that there is a place for them, and they do all the right things, and it's fantastic. But and they, and they should be asking those questions. Um, but um, yeah, like I said, I'm not informed enough to know either way. So
0: let's uh, let's look at some postcards from the Giro. Um, this is a really nice feature. Um, opens up with an email from Andy McGrath to Chris Jule Jensen. Is that how you pronounce his name? Got no idea. It's Dan- Danish, right? Yeah, yeah. Danish rider, uh, making I think his debut um, in the in the Giro, and um, Andy says. Dear Chris, we're thinking of doing a cool feature in the next edition of Rouleur. Um, after every stage of the d'Italia, you write the stage number, the date and some words on a postcard and send it to us. And and that's pretty much how it works out. It starts off with postcards. It, it's quite um, quite good at the beginning. Then, obviously, the postcard availability diminishes. It seems like it gets quite a, quite a good few postcards in um, Northern Ireland and, and Ireland. And, and then it sort of turns into... Um, Race numbers, and uh, so what's this? Food Team wrappers pool, yeah.
1: from yeah, the food wrapper there, and then I think there's a track mitt somewhere. There's room lists. Um, it's quite an eclectic, uh, quite an eclectic mix. A lot of rider numbers, his and other people's. Which a is little cool. profile there,
0: sort of annotated.
1: Yeah, it's
0: uh, with a nice. I love this one. On this, um, this, is stage eight with a great big blue arrow saying,
1: "I got dropped about here." Right at the foot of the climb. No, it's <laughs> uh, it's nice. It's 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 a charming little collection of stuff, um, and it's uh, good on him for doing it because I think doing anything like that during a uh, doing something as stressful and hard as the Grand Tour is um, is uh, is remarkable. Really, there's a cap there, which is quite nice, uh, full of road dirt. What's the longest um, stage race you've ridden? Uh, I think 12 days. I think would have been the longest I did. Um, a week to 12 days is kind of all the same really there's not like a great big difference and there's a lot of week long 8, nine, 10 days stage races when you get to a Grand Tour something I never did I imagine it just gets beyond that when you've still got 8, 9 sort of days to go that gets when it gets really really hard
0: I mean we both got the sense reading the piece that from about stage 14 to sort of stage 17 is where he really starts falling apart mentally a little bit and <laughs> going a bit off the rails I mean in, in a very uh, charming kind of way
1: yeah, there's one, I can't remember where it is, where he, it gets quite dark. And he's just like, I'm really sorry, my mind, that's it, mind is slowing down. Can't comprehend any big decisions, have no more toothpaste, nor does Jay. What do we do? And that's all he can get out of it. It's like, that is stage, yeah, stage 13, and it's kind of... That's, when, I've, when I've done interviews with guys on Grand Tours, I remember I went to meet Dave Miller a few years ago at the Tour de France, and it was quite far in, and Dave's a guy who's constantly full of energy. He's permanently hyperactive almost, and I met him and he was just really, like, it was like he was considering every word that he said because he was just in utter survival mode. And so it, it really hit me, like, geez, these guys are exhausted, which is, yeah, yeah amazing, really. When we um, spoke at the
0: um, summit finish on Dartmoor um, last year at the Tour of Britain, you talked, I thought, very interestingly about the rhythm of a day's racing in the Tour of Britain and how... Uh, races uh, develop their rhythm and settle into a pattern and that kind of thing and there's a rhythm to to a grand tour or or, or a stage race
1: isn't there yeah absolutely um and i think you do kind of fall into that quite easily that rhythm when you're sort of focused on 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 the small things ahead so it's like okay well where where might i be getting dropped like where am i going to ride in the groupetto? to um so then like working things out the way you you know what you're going to have for breakfast, knowing what time you get up, and all those things just sort of fall into place. And it's quite. People often turn, oh, but you're living inside a bubble, which it's quite interesting. When I spoke to Dave Miller as well, I asked him about that, and he just said, "Well, we always live inside a bubble as bike riders. There is always, we're always protected by what we do, and we're always in a rhythm of doing things every day. Getting up to go training. I mean, you know, you go training around nine o'clock every day or ten o'clock every day, and then you train until this time and you rest until this time. So, I think." your life sort of leads you into that as a cyclist, whereas out, outside that, your life's a little bit more unpredictable.
0: Well, this uh, brings us quite neatly, I think, to uh, Morton Okbo's piece, which is uh, uh, ostensibly about um, a hotel in Belgium, right? Or is yes. it in... Yeah, Belgium. Yeah. It's yep. a Belgian hotel, legendary hotel, the Hotel Malpertus, a legendary hotel in, in cycle sport. But Morton and uh, photographer Jakob Christian Sorensen are not, are not going there to learn about the hotel and uh, its place in cycle sports and, and they find it quite difficult not to get all those stories
1: well I think they kind of went there because they did want to get that but then I think Morton's is one of those he's a great writer and he sees something that's interesting and he wants to get onto it and I think he um, he sort of noticed um, Valeria Piva who is the hotel owner his wife and he sort of thought she's more interesting she's got a story to tell and his article is actually about trying to get the story out of her because every time he talks to her she um just defers to well my husband did this or my husband did that or this 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 he's like yeah but what about you it turns out she's like a very she's from her father was a cyclist so she's from a very traditional cycling background and basically um she was told right you're going to marry a cyclist and you have to look after him and you have to you know be a good cycling wife and that's what she's built up her life to do which is in itself fascinating because she's sort of given up everything it seems like she almost lives through him I think Morton's kind of t- trying to it's really interesting reading he's trying to shake her out of out of herself um, And I think he says he shouts at her at one stage which is yeah, must be quite interesting.
0: interesting. I mean, it's a it's a difficult. It's always difficult talking about Morton's pieces because you really do need you need to really just read them and and draw your own conclusions. Um, it's a it's a it's an interesting piece. It's it's quite it starts from quite a difficult premise, I think, for uh, you know a modern enlightened reader, and and Morton alludes to that 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 there is this life of the the the, the bike racing um, partner. Um, widow you might say who who, you know for hundreds hundreds of days a year they're they're not there and then when they are there everything's got to be done for them I mean it's quite difficult to switch from that role of independence and self-reliance to you know
1: near subservience. Absolutely it must be a a, a very strange thing to have someone for kids as well who's not there all the time and then suddenly turns up um, and I think it's Interestingly, it's something that a lot of riders sort of struggle with when they do finish their career because all of a sudden you get these two people that have spent half their lives apart and it's like, oh, actually we have to live under the same roof every day. And then, yeah, well, you go to any Grand Tour and you'll notice all the bike riders sort of slipping back into old habits and then, you know, working as drivers or doing this or doing that, and it's just because they're they're so used to it. The only way to sort of keep home life (laughs) working is to not be there. Somebody told me once the only way to stay married for 25 years is to not be there for half of them, so...
0: <laughs> Did you notice a, a difference in the demeanour um, of riders who had a family life back home, a wife, children perhaps, and those who were yet to uh, yet to start a family? I mean, they talk about the curse of Bambino, don't they? You know, as soon as you have a child, the, you know, the results
1: disappear. I think it's natural, um... There's another thing that um, came up when I was talking to Charlie a lot is you know there there are are riders who have a newborn and he's like, okay well, I'm going to sleep in a different room and I'm not going to do anything about this kid when it cries in the night um, because I need to be informed I need to get my rest. For the mother to take all that on and just accept it, it must be be very tough. I think the biggest difference is, well, it isn't between those who have a family and those who don't, it's between those riders who spend their time chasing women on races and those who don't. (laughs) And... uh, there's a lot of energy wasted that way I'm sure
0: have you uh, have you moved on from being a professional bike
1: racer you're wearing a pair of
0: shorts here and I can I can see your um your hair suit in the in the leg department
1: uh, yeah I think so I, I I like to think so I mean its it's quite hard because I still I still work very much in in the sport and sometimes sometimes I feel like I haven't actually got that far so uh, I'm sure I will in time I feel I don't feel like a bike rider anymore. Certainly certainly not when I ride my bike, that's for sure.
0: Anything else in the uh, issue catch your eye? Tom, we've got the feature on um, Hannah Barnes.
1: Yeah, I was actually uh, reading that, and there was uh, uh, not only do I know um, Hannah and Rachel, um, he or her DS, who are both lovely, um, I uh, read a lovely bit about um, how the United Healthcare men and women travel to races together, uh, all as one sort of team, which I found. Sort of really great as a rider, I would have, I would have absolutely loved that. Just because a, a cycling team is a very masculine sort of environment, and you can, in a long time together of all blokes, you can get a bit sort of bored of each other and fed up. So it, yeah, it must be, it must be a really interesting place to be, um, to have sort of you know men and women all together, and yeah, it seems quite forward thinking.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of forward thinking stuff. it's quite a, quite a optimistic article about. The future of women's cycling there because it focuses a bit about the um, the women's tour of Britain, which you know does seem to have set a new high bar in terms of a of a women's stage race.
1: Yeah, I mean that, that went down fantastically, and I think uh, it sort of opened everyone's eyes, and you know hopefully it continues to grow. You can also read about light speed bicycles, both um, titanium
0: and carbon, in a feature by Ian Cleverly, um, and the usual columns by um, Johnny Green. Robert Miller, another op, a kind of optimistic um, an optimistic one from Robert Miller and um, I must ask you about Matt Seaton's column, um, Pronus, where he describes being on, out on a sort of uh, ride, riding around doing laps of Central Park where um, the, a, a guy in full Belkin kit kind of sits in and uh, and everyone's like, oh god, who's this twat in the full team kit and it turns out that it's Robert Hassink who actually does ride for the team who's had some sort of uh, injury and in is um in New York with his family and just getting a getting a spin- in
1: yeah I mean that's it's a lovely piece because I think it's one of the one as he says in it one of the great things about cycling which I enjoyed both as a rider as a pro and as as a punter almost is the fact that you can share the road you know you, you, you can never go and um, play cricket with Shane Warne or you know, kick a football around with yeah, whoever but you can just ride with someone and most you know pro bike riders were all bike riders at one stage um, as long as you don't knock them off or dick around then they really enjoy just being a bike rider sometimes which is really nice.
0: Thank you very much Tom Southern for chatting about issue 48 of the magazine and uh, just to play out on this issue. A couple of weeks ago I was covering the National Road Race Championships uh, for the Ruler Annual which will be coming out uh, towards the end of the year and as is always the way with writers for Ruler, my my job on the day was essentially to ferry around the photographer Olaf who'd flown in from Munich to photograph the event and um, as I was uh, driving around I thought I'd just keep a little bit of an audio record of what had happened Um, and so here's me and Olaf at the National Road Race Championships. Olaf, this is your first time in Wales, right?
2: That's right, yeah. First time South Wales.
0: And we've driven out to a kind of hillside. We wrecked last night in the fading light to uh, to find Olaf a place to take a photograph. It's just, this is just for one photograph we've driven out here, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's always like um, we try to do a shoot where you can a little bit recognise where you are because usually the... Cycling circus is a global thing, so the same riders, the same shirts, everywhere. And now we are doing the British nationals. That's why I thought we should find a spot where we can recognise ways.
0: And maybe we can describe the scene. We're in a little lay-by here. Um, Yesterday night there was a a large agricultural transport vehicle used uh, for moving large quantities of sheep around uh, that has just pulled away now so um was that a prop was that a kind of a thing that you thought you might um make use of in a, in a photograph this this large agricultural vehicle
2: to be honest yes uh, i thought uh, it would be good to have it in or as an um, alternative shot um, but um' long enough uh, photographers that i know that uh, take take your chance when it is your chance and not a day later or two seconds later
0: and we're watching a number of um uh, amateur riders or just just uh, recreational riders riding up along this road this is a popular road this is a road that goes from Abergavenny to uh, skenfrith um, and on to Monmouth and it's a popular road for um, club riders and uh, recreational riders of all kinds and it's amazing, having just been down at the signing on for the men's race to see the the difference you really feel that the people we've seen going past they just look like ordinary ordinary people, but they look like a kind of different species to the to the guys who are racing when you see them close mm. up
2: in in general it's like a different species you know, the, the professionals and the amateurs and the amateurs and the hobby riders and uh, always uh, down the ladder but uh, that's one of the interesting things of the nationals in general is that uh, they are coming together, the so different um, level of pro riders, and uh, that makes this kind of races uh, such special and such uh, interesting uh, for me and for all of us. Because some good riders, or really good riders, have to go alone if they're the only one, uh, only British one in the team. So. They so have to um, link somewhere in the team and this race. So oh, that's interesting in the national.
0: I think we've still got about 20 minutes. Um, we could waffle on, I'm sure, for a long time. But uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll catch up um, with, uh, with our progress. Maybe after Olaf, you've taken your photograph.
2: Okay, see you later.
0: We've joined a kind of unofficial uh, caravan publicitaire, except Olaf, you forgot to bring the Haribos to throw out the window. So let's uh, describe the state of the race. Um, we saw a group, a leading group of uh, maybe eight riders, do you think? Yeah, about um, eight, eight or ten.
2: And three of them were of
0: Team Sky. Was it three or four? Three? I yes. just okay. uh, saw a green edge, a flash of green edge. So yeah. that would be the Yates brothers, yeah. one of them or both and then a lonely figure of Geraint Thomas was uh, uh, coming through really stuck between this leading pack maybe two minutes or three minutes after and then uh, the, next the, the next group did you get your photo?
2: Uh, we'll see I'm working on film and after the lap I can tell you more no I have good a good feeling if I uh, Usually if I don't have the feeling that I got the photo I'm staying and do it at another time but in a road in a cycling in a road race it's not so <laughs> uh, easy because you have this uh, moment you where uh, you have to get it.
0: Well, we've just stepped out of the pub. We've been having a little drink at the end of the day. It's been quite a long day, quite an interesting day. Um, and it's just almost as if the National Road Race Championships never happened in this town because it's all disappeared. Everything's been packed away and driven away on a lorry somewhere, but, but we're still here. The last time we spoke on the podcast, I was um, about to deliver you to a bridge on a dual carriageway over over the race, and I did manage to leave you there. I felt a bit bad as I looked in my rear view mirror to see you standing there with your <laughs> rucksack and your and your Hasselblad dangling from your neck, running along trying to to find a, a spot to uh, photograph. But did you did you find that spot?
2: No, everything was fine. It was a good spot, and um, I, I I did it. And um, it was like uh, maybe like two or three laps. I watched from this point and um, I could see that uh, the Sky train, how, uh, like they called it, and uh, Sky ever had uh, the, the everything in his hand. So there was like um, no way that another rider, I mean uh, the, the Oregon Greenwich rider tried. Oh, Simon Yates, he did Simon, well. He, he did, did well. well and he was the strongest, I think. But without team... Um, he, he, it's a bronze, bronze. So bronzer, it's a third place. It's a great, great uh, thing he did.
0: And I think it was also a big surprise for a lot of people because they would have thought that, in a head-to-head between Peter Kenya and Ben Swift, Ben Swift as the sprinter would take mm. it. But I gather he was cramping a lot during the during the last circuits and um, didn't have the legs in the end. And and Peter Kenyuk in the interview I did with him. With the press corps afterwards, you know, just said he really, really, really wanted to win today. He really wanted to win. I knew, you know, I would have done anything for that to win that race, but I think it was more the tactical advantage and the experience I had from
1: 2009. It is a really difficult sprint that to time right and get right, and you can come from behind with a lot of speed. Like, don't forget, I sat on Swifty for maybe the last 5k. He had to, you know, wind the sprint up all the time I'm saving 50% of my energy and you know a better man
0: I wouldn't have betted on myself but you know here we go well Olaf <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be on this assignment with you I hope um, you've enjoyed listening to to our capers as we've um, caroused around Montmachire but um, it's been a great pleasure
2: yeah, it was a pleasure for me and great to be here in wave
0: Thanks for downloading this edition of the Ruler podcast. You can read Ruler magazine, which comes out eight times a year, by taking out a subscription. Go to www.ruler.cc or you can pick up the latest edition at a growing number of bookshops and bike shops. If you've got an iPad, you can read the magazine on the iPad. Not only the current issue, but a handful of back issues as well. You'll find it in the Apple Bookstore.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.